Hey, you're about to visit Robben Island. You were active in politics in the 70s and 80s. What did you do to help release Man Nelson Mandela? Well, I think what is important is what the United Kingdom did. And no, no, what did you do? What did you do? Did, did you go on protests? Did you get arrested outside the embassy? Did you boycott South African goods? Did you do anything? I think you know full well that I didn't go on protests, Michael. But what is important is the work that the United Kingdom... Well, did you Kingdom, boycott South African the work, goods? The work that the United Kingdom government did to ensure that it was able to give support where that support but Hang was on needed, a moment. At that stage, Mrs Thatcher, Mrs Thatcher believed that Nelson Mandela was a terrorist. Were you a loyal Conservative Party member? Did you think the same thing? What was important was the support that the UK government was giving at the time, often support behind the scenes, uh, but in, in other ways too. But, but to not Theresa May. We saw, to ensure that we saw the result that we did in relation to the ending of apartheid here in South Africa. A government led by a woman who thought that Nelson Mandela was a terrorist. Now you're going to be going to Robin Island. Aren't you going to be feeling guilty that at the time Nelson Mandela was on Robin Island, you, Theresa May, did nothing to help his release, you personally? What I, what I will be feeling, I think, when I go to Robin Island, uh, is to recognise the immense statementship, statesmanship of a man who spent so many years incarcerated and when he came out of that incarceration had that breadth of vision and that calm approach that has enabled South Africa to be built into the country that it is today. A country with which we, the United Kingdom, have long historical links, but for obvious reasons, but also for which we, with which we can forge a new partnership for the future. Very active in the photographs of Hotel, and that went with me, David Briskin. Hello, David. Oops, sorry. How's it going, brother? Pretty good. Oh, well, I'm going to mute this because I think you're getting yeah, we're washed gonna get out. Yeah, we're going to get echo from that. Sorry. Yeah. Um, it's it's pretty good, though, that the UK's now um, last three <laughs> leaders have been complete bumblers. You know, it's it's interesting. Like, I well, love. I mean, you could go and, back even further than that. Yeah. Yeah. I, Ivan, I've. I've I grew up idolizing the British press. Like they have some high, I forget Jeremy Paxman is a high profile example of the hard questioning TV journalist. And every once in a while, it remind, uh, reminds you that that is a much healthier TV news culture for what it's worth, which might not be that much um, than America has. And you just wish that like, maybe, you know, when the question comes up like did you say um boycott goods <laughs> that this context of uh, bds and palestine maybe the british press could have gave uh jeremy corbyn a little bit better of a shake but uh yeah oh yeah i mean i i will say you know i don't think it's good to be too bitter for too long um but i do love when when corbyn gets a little feisty about the way that he was treated all these years yeah and, and on that note um I highly suggest that people go out and watch um, the labor files from Al Jazeera. Mm. Um, I mean, it's it's really harrowing stuff. A lot of stuff that we had a sense of before. Excuse me, sorry. Um, 
that we had a that a sense of before, but it's worth remembering just what they did to Jeremy Corbyn and how egregious all that was. If you want also a report from real time, um, we did something with Daniel Finn on TMBS on October 30th entitled, Why Was Corbyn Suspended um, from the Labor Party? Um, which I think was also a pretty decent look at some of these these leaks that we were getting. But yeah, I suggest people check that out if you're got a, on a UK kick or anything like that. Yeah, interesting. I've seen that mentioned. Uh, I need to. I need to watch that. It's good. I mean, it took me a little while to get to it, just because like it makes me so depressed to remember what they did to him and how excited we were about. It. I mean, I was more excited about the Corbyn movement in some ways than even the Bernie movement here. Um, mm-hmm. Not that it's a competition or anything like that, but there was a lot there that was really exciting. And yeah, the way that they were able to play that out and completely undermine that system, and and uh, it's relevant. The Labor Party itself was just mm. you know actively working. Like there is a very very likely um, situation where uh, Labor is actually able to win um, in that first election against May um, if they weren't sabotaged by the Labor Party itself, which is a pretty insane thing to say that they would and rather be out of power than let like kind of pro working class politics come into power. Right. And that is exactly relevant to the Democratic Party today. You see these attacks on Rashida Tlaib uh, saying just what a any progressive movement should be able to say about an apartheid uh, state in Israel, which is recognized by more and more folks, even Amnesty International. And there was a coordinated, uh, you know, attack on her as if she was out of line. I mean, wild. I'm very relevant. We, we should we should maybe have someone on to just do another retrospective of the Corbin. I mean, you, I, I I take your point about not being bitter for too long, but I am still quite bitter. I think it's. I mean, it's definitely worth it. Um, well, we got we got a mixed bag in terms of positive versus negative things today. We have a we have a fun show planned. In a bit, we're going to be joined by Darna Noor, um, who you all should be following and reading if you aren't already. She is a wonderful reporter at the Boston Globe great Twitter follow as well. You can find links to her work and all that um, in the show notes down below. Um, later in the evening, in the post game, Kale Brooks is going to be joining on uh, joining us. We'll play a teaser later for that um, to help Jimmy Dore and his friends understand communism a little bit better. Um, and, uh, and we got you know some more stuff. Like, you know, those videos where it's like, I, I made my dad listen to Rage Against the Machine for the first time, yeah. and this is his reaction. Um, Kale is like not very online, so not, not as um, sort of fluent in the, some of these personalities as uh, we unfortunately even are. Um, and so it's funny to sort of subject him to it. Uh, Absolutely. It's fun. So, I mean, Kale makes a point of avoiding Twitter stuff. So Kale is fresh uh, going into that. You get access to that at patreon.com uh, slash left reckoning. Um, but we got a couple of stories we want to get to up top uh, before we get to Darna. Um, the first one, we're going to bring back a TMBS segment um, called the shout out. Um, to shout out a really inspiring movement right now um, under very, very dire circumstances. And that is what is happening in Alabama. We're in Alabama, prisoners who have been held under some of the most inhumane conditions, right? That's not just me editorializing. That's the federal government coming in and saying the way you are treating prisoners in Alabama is inhumane, right? Mm-hmm. They have been going on strike. And remember, how much prison labor um, produces in this country. They have been going on strike in Alabama, um, and we want to shout them out. And we have this report here uh, to help set the scene. And just sorry to, to jump in quick, but you know who does remember how important prison labor is? Brett Favre. Uh, say, like, can we make some volleyball lockers uh, with these guys? Uh, so, yeah. It, anyway, here's the question. No, that's very true. 
That's right. It's quiet and seemingly business as usual here at the Limestone Correctional Facility. But on the inside, sources tell me the prison is on lockdown as the continued protest for change happens statewide. The strike does not end until the demands are met. Today in Montgomery, family members rallied on behalf of inmates, saying they won't be working until ADOC makes changes and improvements. A sentence in Alabama prison system should not be an automatic death sentence. And that is exactly what it's become. Mm. Prisons in Alabama have been a major talking point for years after the U.S. Department of Justice began an investigation into facilities back in 2016. Four years later, the DOJ filed a lawsuit against ADOC over the conditions, saying inmates were being denied their 8th and 14th Amendment rights. They're not getting their medical treatments. They're not getting their basic human rights met. Family members say the prison protests at facilities across the state aim to bring awareness to poor conditions. These guys aren't complaining about working. They're just not going to help them to their job anymore when everything that has been taken away from them. Just last week, the family of Castillo Vaughn, who is serving a 25-year sentence at the Elmore Correctional Facility, released disturbing photos of Vaughn looking emaciated and unable to sit up after having surgery in August and taken back to the prison. ADOC has refused to comment on Vaughn's condition. What we saw on this video that surfaced recently of the brother Castillo, that was something that we have seen for years. I spoke with one mother of a nonviolent offender whose son is in the Limestone Correctional Facility. She says her son reported only getting one slice of bread and one slice of cheese for breakfast. They're literally, I, I feel like they're, they're starving them on purpose because they knew this was going to happen today. And, and the state doesn't have enough employees to do these jobs, so they have to rely on the inmates to do them. ADOC said in a statement that security measures have been deployed. Commissioner John Hamm saying, quote, all facilities are operational and there have been no disruption to critical services, end quote. Protesters said during Monday's rally that the work stoppage inside the prison will continue until the demands of the group are met. In response to the protest and demands being made, the governor's office said that the protesters' demands are, quote, unreal. And then they go on to say um, they're very excited that Alabama is looking to expand their prison system. Um, I, I know it's a, it's a heavy sh- um, subject for a shout out, but you want to shout um, those people because that is extremely brave. You want to talk about doing something like that in public, right, where there are cameras and people watching and the way that those strikes are beat down um, by the system here. Imagine what happens behind those walls there. So shout out to all the people um, on strike and shout out to their families. Uh, The way we treat prisoners in this country is absolutely disgusting. From that to here in Texas, for example, they don't have a right to air conditioning, um, which is an absolutely horrific thought when you think about the amount of days, for example, over the summer we had that were over 100 degrees. Um, So shout out to all the people who are fighting back against that. And uh, you have our utmost solidarity and you're not forgotten because that's the reason we want to highlight this is that there is this kind of hope from the wardens and the people who profit off of the system that people will forget about them. And uh, we're here to say, no, we don't. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you see this most, more acutely during the pandemic, but even before that we had prisons here in Brooklyn that during the Mm -hmm. uh, winter, the uh, heating would be broken. So the guys would be fucking freezing their ass off in these cells. And uh, it's, I mean, those pictures, that's like that's like the United Nations should be involved, right? Like that should absolutely not be 
uh, acceptable, people should be going to prison, <laughs> ironically, for those sorts of conditions of, uh, you know, killing people with neglect. No, no doubt about it. Well, shout out um, to all of them. And, you know, talking about, you know, another story that has a, has a prison element, we wanted to make sure um, it's a big week here. It's a big week here at Left Reckoning. It's a big work uh, week, I think, for everyone in the TMBS extended universe. And it's a huge week for Brazil as they're setting up um, for presidential election where we're going to see um, Lula come up against Bolsonaro, an election that was denied um, by a corrupt system that had American involvement um, in the uh, in the political persecution and uh illegal imprisonment of Lula da Silva in the last presidential election. And we wanted to cover it a little bit. We're going to definitely dedicate next week's episode um, to breaking down whatever happens. Um, Polls have been looking really good um, for Lula. Um, The question really is going to be whether or not he's going to be able to win an outright first round victory. Um, But again, uh, you know, these things can be wrong. So we'll be doing more on this, but we want to give everyone a little preview, set the stage a little bit, get people a little excited and remember just how stark of a contrast these world visions are between Lula and Bolsonaro because really like, you know, you put up a nasty Republican candidate or even a Trump over a Biden, right? There's a difference between them. I'm not saying there's not, but this is an election where it's clear as damn day. Um, The vision for society, the vision for the world between these two folks. Remember Lula, former president of Brazil, but many people forget that he was the former president of the Steelworkers union um, who was imprisoned by the military dictatorship. Lula lost a finger uh, one of his fingers when he was working at 19 at an auto plant, right? He's running again for president against Bolsonaro, the clown fascist, little fancy boy um, who has been an active and impassioned supporter of the military dictatorship, both when it was in power, right? He was a very passionate defender of it and in some ways too passionate because it got him into a bit of trouble uh, when he was in the military, um, who under his presidency, a presidency that was effectively stolen, um, because of the actions of the, the justice system in Brazil, which erroneously um, put Lula in prison, has literally been burning the country down. Not metaphorically, literally been burning the country down. You know, and I think it's important to remember, we're going to talk a bit about the policy difference, about the moral difference between these people. Um, but I do think narratively, too, it's worth remembering. Lula is somebody comes up from the working class fights in the union movement at a time when it was extremely difficult to do so, right? Not as hard as, you know, in any situation to fight for workers' rights. It's hard in a country like the United States to do that today. It's hard, like, in the United States to do that in the early 20th century. But Lula was doing that when there was a military dictatorship, when your rights were not guaranteed, right? When it was really, like, the, the, the law of the strong over the weak was that was the rule of the society. And Lula said, I'm going to stand up with my fellow working people to fight against the system. While that was going on, um, Bolsonaro was a very impassioned supporter of it. And you can see that in their politics today. When Bolsonaro, this has happened a couple of years ago, but just to give people like a sense of it, because I think, you know, there's so many um, outrageous stories about Bolsonaro, you forget about a lot of them. When Bolsonaro was speaking about child labor, which is a real problem in Brazil, which has been made much, much worse by the poverty that Bolsonaro has created in the country. You know, what Bolsonaro said about child labor, Matt, <laughs> I bet you can actually guess. He said, when he was a boy, he helped out on his father's farm. And, quote, it didn't do him any hard, any harm, excuse me. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, like, that's the, that's the care that uh, Bolsonaro gives to children who are forced into 
real labor, right? Not just like doing some chores yeah. once in a while, real labor because of the poverty created by him and his friends. Are we sure Bolsonaro didn't get hit, kicked in the head by a mule? <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and look, and the, this weekend, Brazilians get to vote between these two men who have extremely and distinctly different visions for the future of Brazil. Here, just to set this up, is Lula talking a little while ago, I borrowed this from Brian Mir, um, about workers' rights in Brazil. And this isn't Portuguese, so I'm sorry, folks, who are um, listening to the podcast version. You're going to have to find it. It's worth uh, finding, though. Porque é engraçado esse mundo. Veja, eu sou teu empregado. Eu peço um aumento para você. Você me nega o aumento. Não acontece nada com você. Aí eu tenho para vender minha mão de obra. Eu faço uma greve, a polícia vem para cima de mim. Por que, que a polícia não foi para cima de você que negou? Por que, que só vem para cima de mim? Ora, você vendo o teu emprego e ouvindo a minha força de trabalho. I mean, hell yeah. Like right there, like very clearly showing that even um, in what most people I think would consider to be an acceptable justice system, Lula is making the point that these systems are set up to attack the poor and protect the power of the rich. And what's Bolsonaro been up to? This. Fucking around with some of the nastiest, most right-wing, hate-filled people in the world. Tucker Carlson has taken an extreme liking uh, to Bolsonaro and Bolsonaro's taken an extreme liking uh, to Carlson and the whole Trump movement as well, right? It's not even a one-off. Bolsonaro has surrounded himself with right-wingers in the military in Brazil um, and also globally. And when people, if, when you read Washington Post, um, when you read kind of mainstream uh, news on, on, on this story, I don't think this is an inaccurate picture. Um, but one of the points that is often being made is that this is really a question, uh, an election about democracy and kind of, uh, you know, pushing back on Bolsonaro. And I think that's a co completely valid point to make. But I think that that also sort of peppers over the very stark reality of what working people in Brazil have been suffering, suffering over the past few years. Um, but the democracy question is no small bit. You know, for people who watch the show, you know this already. Bolsonaro is basically threatened um, to not respect the results of, of the election and from the get-go has surrounded himself with the military, which is a big faux pas in Brazil because, as I was noting earlier, this is a country that in living memory was under military dictatorship. So there has always sort of been an unofficial bar on surrounding yourself with military appointees into your government. Bolsonaro broke that almost immediately. Um, and here's Brian Muir reporting on Bolsonaro and some of the fears about the democratic threat that Bolsonaro um, makes. President Jair Bolsonaro and military generals serving in his cabinet have been threatening to disrespect the election results if former President Lula, who is leading in all of the polls, wins the elections. This has led many observers to believe that the military may support an auto coup this October. The big problem of the backwards bourgeois leading Brazil is that Lula did what they were never able to do for the nation and the people. So today, they are afraid of us coming back because the population will certainly remember this, and it will be very hard for them to take back power in the future. President Bolsonaro and his defense minister have made a series of baseless claims that the electronic voting system, which has never been hacked in the 30 years since it was implemented, is susceptible to fraud. They've created a new department in the army called the Cybernetic Crime Division and are pressuring the electoral court to allow it to audit the elections. 
How can the leaders of the Brazilian military meddle in the elections? This isn't their role. Elections belong to the people, and the people are showing that they prefer to rebuild Brazil with Lula. A recent internal study commissioned by the defense minister that was leaked to the press shows that both the Air Force and Navy command would be willing to support an auto coup in October, but the leadership of most state military police forces and the Army, which is twice as large as the Air Force and Navy combined, are opposed to any rupture with democracy. Today the conditions needed for a coup are in place. Even though they want to do it, when they complain about the electronic voting system, they try to set a mood for a coup. But the Brazilian people in a national and international political context will not yet allow this kind of adventure. With Brazil's presidential elections less than 20 days away, the population nervously awaits their results. Brian Mir, Telesur, Recife. And again, I I think that people should take these, these threats extremely seriously um, because Bolsonaro has been setting this up. And why is he doing that? It's because it is very clear that he does not have popular support to, to win this presidential election, right? He's going to get some votes. Don't get me wrong. Um, but it's very clear that he has lost whatever um, he had when he was able to win his first election. And what he had then, by the way, um, was a judicial process that pulled Lula out of the race on erroneous charges that the United Nations, the United Nations, right? It's not like a, I know sometimes people on the left have like a little bit of a halo about that organization. It's not an organization um, that typically steps in in moments like this, has said that that process of taking away of imprisoning Lula, the investigation against him and the trial against him violated his basic human rights. The United Nations has shown this. And the fact that it was thrown out because it was so erroneous, um, so nonsensical, the charges against him, was what was uh, allowed Bolsonaro to come into power in the first place. And Bolsonaro, who ran on an anti-corruption, you know, clean up the government campaign, <laughs> has been running one of the most corrupt, open um, piggy bank kind of government since he's coming to power in Brazil. Um, and I'll remind folks that... <laughs> The advantage that we have here is that what Bolsonaro is doing is so um, nonsensical that what he's pushing right now is so untethered from reality that it's very important that people be paying attention uh, to this election because people don't like to do coups underneath a fine light. They like to do right. them when they're obscured, when they're hidden from people. Um, and it's very important that we continue to, to highlight this as we go into this election because it's very clear which way the vote should be going. Um, and Bolsonaro is trying to set himself up to try to deny these so that he can continue to pillage Brazil. Yeah. And I mean, that's the concerning thing is, you know, you hear the analysis that I think seems fair and the same one I did about Trump, which is that the the individual politician Bolsonaro, or in our case, Trump, definitely wants a coup. <laughs> they would definitely love, uh, you know, authorities to step in and deliver the office for them those authorities willingness to do so is another question but that can also change and mm -hmm. you know i mean anybody that's our age knows that the supreme court decided the 2000 election not the mm -hmm. american people and this is just how parties like this is not a uh this is not foreign to these parties in power now it's been very good, too, that I think in no small part, by the way, because uh, Michael Brooks has made Brazil such a big issue on the left that there has been a lot of outspoken um, warnings from people on the left in power 
about potential election, um, I don't know, denial from Bolsonaro. Um, Bernie Sanders has been pushing the United States government to take a position that they will not um, accept a you know military coup in Brazil. Um, and it's been very notable, not that it irony gets us too far with the Republican Party, that all these boys um, like Marco Rubio, little Marco, um, who were so worried about electric in, election integrity and all these other countries were so involved. The United States needs to play a big role in it um, when it comes to toppling another democratically elected leader, Evo Morales, in Bolivia. Now say it's not America's place uh, to get involved in these kind of things, right? Again, hypocrisy only gets you so far with these people. But it's very good that Bernie Sanders right now is sitting in the United States Congress and saying these kind of things because mm-hmm. it shows that there is a light on this country that when Bolsonaro does try to play, because he's going to try to do something, the question is going to be, does he have the ability to follow through on it? And that's going to come down to a couple of things, popular movements, social movements, and whether or not the military and rich people in that country think that Bolsonaro is a viable um, you know, tool for them to use to maintain their power. Mm. Um. But going back to the kind of popular coverage on this, right? So when you read, again, like big time international or national news in the United States, it's democracy, return to normalcy, and another thing, um, the Amazon. And I just want to say this up top, um, because the Brazil elections right now have absolutely important implications for the survival of the Amazon. But I think it's really important that we talk about this in the right way, because it's very important to defend the Amazon, but you can't do that in a way that like flattens the Brazilian people and the indigenous people to a secondary position where like their worth is only to be the stewards of the land. They deserve the same rights to a better and more prosperous life as anyone else. And that is a possibility with a conscious program of pro-worker, pro-people, pro-environmental policy that has been outlined by Lula da Silva. I guess like just I just have to say it because I hear people talk about the Amazon who I've never heard express any concern for the people in Brazil. And I think that just kind of really reeks of a nasty kind of imperialism to me. Yeah. But- and it's it sets you up for an attack from the right saying like you're you're just you don't care about that. You just care about your, um, you know, yeah. envir- green and priorities. Which but is what Bolsonaro uh, argues. Too. Right. And to add to that, there's this from this. um uh, Guardian article, Amazon deforestation reduced 80% between 2004 and 2012 under the Workers' Party administration of Lula, Inacio Lula da Silva, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva. Bolsonaro has uh, steadily dismantled or discredited the mechanisms that achieved that satellite monitoring personnel on the ground and legislation to punish offenders. So, like, yeah, it is it is doable and it's actually been done. Yeah. No, and there's no doubt about it. I mean, we've 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 seen that from the policies that Lula has been has been outlining um, in coordination with a lot of movements and people who are very much affected by it. Uh, this is a report here on the indigenous movements in Brazil that I think really highlights again um, the stark difference. Actually, you know, before we get there um, and, and point out Lula's positive vision, let's just remind people about what the situation is in the Amazon. If you're not familiar, the National Space Research Agency has found. 31,000 fires in the Amazon just in this past month, right? Making it one of the worst months in Brazilian history. And a hell of a lot has to do with the policy of Brazil. Most importantly, Bolsonaro's very clear flaunting of the law and the legal system in that country. And as he's been going out 
publicly and saying things along the lines of, you know, go take whatever land you want, burn down whatever you want, log whatever you want, cut down whatever you want, and we won't, we're not going to touch you, right? So it's not even, while he has pulled back a lot of environmental regulations, it's also gotten way worse because basically whichever ones are still in the books, Bolsonaro's just saying, ignore them, do whatever you want. And I mean, can you imagine the kind of crisis and chaos situation that that creates in a country like Brazil, which unlike, which much like the United States has a history of a certain class of people, a certain race of people basically saying, we're going to do whatever we want to hell with the people um, who live in and and need this land. Um, It's a good reminder of whatever happened to the law and order Jair. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Um, But here's, here's a report on the indigenous movements in Brazil and how they're sort of aligning uh, with Lula. But lately, Brazil's one million indigenous people have been making their voices heard in the centers of political power. We had to unite indigenous people from all over the country and make strategic alliances in Brazil and abroad to fight our common enemy, President Jair Bolsonaro. His government has been pushing for legislation, opening our lands to commercial mining and farming and turning a blind eye to the destruction of the Amazon. The goal is to fight back by electing their own lawmakers and they have significant support. An organization called the Articulation of Brazil's Indigenous People is backing 30 candidates, like Sonia Guajajara, recently described by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world. We have never suffered so much violence in indigenous territories like now, with attacks and assassinations. The independently run Indigenous Missionary Council registered 305 cases of attacks in 226 indigenous territories in 2021. That's three times more than in 2018. Earlier this year, indigenous expert Bruno Pereira and British journalist Dom Phillips were shot dead by a local fisherman in a remote area of the Amazon. The killings attracted global attention. Pereira had been helping indigenous patrols investigate illegal fishing and poaching in the Javari Valley, the territory's home to the world's largest number of isolated tribes, and the invaders were allegedly working for drug cartels. World-renowned photographer Sebastião Salgado, like many others, points the finger at Bolsonaro. I blame the government for the deaths of Bruno Pereira and Dom Phillips because the president left the Amazon unprotected, permitting criminal gangs to take over. Violence in the Amazon has increased tremendously. Long before the presidential election campaign started, hundreds of indigenous tribes gathered in Brasilia to put their demands in writing. Sonia Guajajara presented the document to leftist candidate Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva, who's leading in the polls against current President <laughs> Bolsonaro. He signed it and promised to create a ministry for the indigenous. I mean, clear as day, as, as Bolsonaro is basically encouraging gangs of thugs to attack indigenous people and, 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 and murder them, um, Lula is there signing pledges and listening to the demands and the concerns of people. I mean, um, again... I don't think that the, 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 these two focuses that we've seen in, in mainstream media about these things are wrong and inaccurate. Um, but I also just want to remind people of the stakes and also who's very clearly, particularly when it comes to environmental policy um, and indigenous rights, 
um, is, is sitting there and listening and who is actually aggravating a horrific war against people. Um, and remember, there's history here. I mean, um, when it comes back to electric, election integrity, remember, this is a country. People forget this because obviously Bolsonaro coming to power um, was such a pivotal moment. But don't forget that before uh, Bolsonaro comes into power, you had uh, Dilma Rousseff, um, who was a uh, you know elected leader of the country, get taken down too with another kind of erroneous attacks against her, nonsensical legal charges against her that basically forced her to be impeached, and then Michelle Temer comes in and continues austerity, waging war on the Amazon, and Bolsonaro inherits that. Right. So if you have to think about it. If you're a Brazilian person, this has been a long time since you have actually had a real presidential election that hasn't been sort of mired in this mm. kind of nonsensical stuff, right? And is a real opportunity after years and years and years of backtracking on the successful policies of the PT um, to right that ship. Lastly, um, I wanted to go back to hunger because that is the thing about Lula that I think is is incredibly important. People might not be familiar, but Lula made dealing um, with hunger in Brazil one of his major planks of his government. And he was extremely effective, created food programs for the poor and, and, and social programs for the poor that literally you can measure their success in the heights of generation of children. Right. I want to say that again. I mean, we're talking so nuts and bolts stuff that you can actually see it in people, the benefit of a Lula government versus these kind of right wing authoritarian systems. And what's so horrific about what Bolsonaro's government has been, has meant for people, is that not only is he waging war on working people, not only is he waging war on the Amazon, he's actually brought back successfully hunger on a large scale to Brazil. Right now, there are 33 million people in Brazil who are living in hunger. I mean, that is astronomical. Would, when you think about um, not just when, when you measure hunger too, like we're talking about people who are in like extreme hunger, who like do not basically have enough calories to survive. More than half the country under Bolsonaro's government now is under food insecurity, which means that it is not a sure thing at the end of the day or at the end of the week that you're going to have enough food to get by. And remember that not only is this something that's preventable, it is something that had been um, you know, dealt with in the past quite successfully by Lula um, and the PT government. Um, I want to put up one last uh, report on this because I think it's really important to highlight that these are the stakes here. There is the the dream of a of a stronger working class in Brazil. There is a stream a, a dream of a more prosperous future, um, but there is also the very very clear need to undo the damage that Bolsonaro has done in this country and to return dignity for everyday people in Brazil. And it's horrific to think that hunger has come back in such extremes under Bolsonaro after Lula had been so successful at dealing with it in the past. State and federal aid is irregular and insufficient. Fifteen years ago, Brazil had eradicated extreme poverty. But six years ago, the situation began reverting, and now Brazil is back on the hunger map. According to Brazil's Institute on Food Security, 
Today, more than 33 million Brazilians are going hungry, and nowhere more so than here in the state of Alagoas. In the absence of effective policies to combat poverty and unemployment, malnutrition and hunger has more than doubled, and that is having a devastating impact on the development of children like these. Academics point out that the last two governments began reducing or eliminating social programs long before the pandemic. The existence of hunger is a political decision. Hunger is caused by the decision not to implement public policies that could fight it. There's been a political decision to prioritize other things. I mean, clear as day. You've seen what has happened over the last two governments when it comes to these things. The decision, I think, is very clear. I know I've been a little dour, but it's just so devastating, um, you know, to see what can happen um, when you backslide into right-wing reaction in, in a country, to see things that were so successful um, be completely gutted. Now, let's get to the positives, right? It's looking really damn good for Lula. Um, not only is he polling well, the movements that are supporting him are very well organized. Um, there have been massive shows of support for him all across the country. While there is the fear of this kind of right-wing military threat, it is not as if um, there is not a highly motivated and mobilized social movement politics in the country of Brazil right now. And that's exactly what you need um, in a moment like this when, when you know, the results of an election um, could be attacked by somebody like Bolsonaro. Um, we'll definitely be doing more uh, next week as we get results. I'm hoping that we'll have um, one of our great Brazilian guests on. It might be a little tough just because it'll be so crazy their day after, but um, hopefully we'll be able to do something on that um, next week. Um, and I also just want to add as like a little side note, uh, we talked about with Brian Muir. One of the things that Bolsonaro sort of claimed in his victory, one of the things that people sort of attribute to his victory in the first round I'm uh, sorry, in, in, in you know, his first election uh, was his capturing of this growing evangelical movement in Brazil. And one thing that I think has been so encouraging has been the inroads with the evangelical community that Lula has made, particularly um, with women. So while it seems like Bolsonaro is still going to get a large amount of, you know, these hyper Christian nationalist reactionaries, a lot of evangelical voters, people who go to evangelical churches um, in Brazil have been pulled back or to uh, the PT orbit. And I think Lula doing what he, he does so well has been really great at that because he's offered you know a lot of fig leaves. You see him when he's on the campaign trail. He's oftentimes quoting the Bible, right? Speaking a language uh, you know, that is mobilizing and motivating to people um, in addition to all of his other kind of policies. I mean, Lula is probably one of the most gifted uh, politicians of, of our era. I don't think there's, you can really argue that. You can dislike him even. Like, I'm just saying like pure, like, you know, analysis game day analysis kind of thing lula is a very skilled politician and it's very important and lucky that in this moment he's the person who's able to you know be holding the flag uh, fighting for a better future for brazilian people yeah i just want to comment on one thing before we play this clip <clears throat> of a uh, michael brooks uh, talking to lula but you know that the point that she made and it's good to see that point made on the news that poverty and hunger particularly uh, or both are um, policy choices. Mm -hmm. And we saw that here with the Democrats passing a child uh, tax credit that took a chunk and didn't solve it. It, it just, it, it was too modest a program, but we could have um, severely, and it took a severe chunk out of child uh, hunger and poverty. And 
then we decided because of uh, Joe Manchin, who we're going to be talking about with Darna, um, <laughs> decided that no. And it's and the one thing that I would just uh, amend about what the um, sociologist said there about the choice is that it's not that they just happen to prioritize other things. There are people that run these governments that want poverty. They yeah. want poverty as a coercive, uh, as a cudgel to uh, control people. It's it's not. And so when you say it's just like, and I'm not blaming that person, you know, I'm just saying like, we have to think about this. It's not an accident. It's not just like, oh, it, it got lost in this big shuffle of papers. No, that want is valuable to the type of people that Bolsonaro, when Bolsonaro says, yeah, go cut down those forests. Those people, they like that hunger. Mm-hmm. No, I, I think it's 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 very true. Well, I think to to close, I don't know if you have this handy map. Um, yeah, so this is uh, part two, uh, the end of part two with the Lula interview, uh, Michael Brooks and Brazil Wire. And this is, uh, Michael asks Lula about sort of like, on top of policy, what are the sort of spiritual things that, you know, make you want to run again? And Lula goes back into this hunger point. Uh, and uh, I'll just uh, translate for folks here. Uh, Brazil has returned. To, uh, I'll turn up a little bit. Brazil has returned to the hunger map. Uh, um, the number of people who have started sleeping on the street in this country. I didn't see children begging on the streets of Brazil anymore. Now children are back on the streets begging. Children are living under bridges in a rich country like Brazil. It doesn't make sense. Forbes published a list of the 20 richest men in Brazil. Sincerely speaking, people say I am a radical. I am not a radical. I am more human. I learned how to be more human in jail. I reflect more, I look over my 70 years of life and realize that I have to fight more, I have to argue more. I have to. You cannot accept the idea that a Brazilian elites don't accept the economic growth of the poor. They don't accept that the poor can have the right to health care, education, water, school, everything that can feed them. They don't accept that the poor have these things. So I'm not radical, Brian. I'm a lot more political. I have a lot more political consciousness. And for this reason, I want to fight a lot more. Oh, but Lula wants to come back. Lula got out of jail angry. Lula got out of jail. And now he wants to polarize. I really want to polarize. I want to make deep ideological debates. I want the people to know that there is no teaching anywhere that says a person has to go three days without food. There is no teaching that says a person should not wake up in the morning and not have a cup of milk or a piece of bread to give their child. In a rich country like this one, so this is why it looks like I am more angry. It looks like I am radical, but I am not. And we can, uh... yeah. I mean, I think that puts it puts it rather clearly. So we'll all be watching very closely. I'm very excited. I think I think we have a really good shot at being able to right a lot of these wrongs. And I, I've been very proud of the the social movements in Brazil. Been very inspired by them, and certainly inspired um, by Lula's uh, courageousness. 
Um, so we'll be watching this. We'll be doing more on this next week. Um, one last time. I know it's I know it's not the slogan anymore because he's free, but I, I did want to do one last uh, Lulu Livre, baby. Um, Lulu Livre, but- yeah. Let's uh let's see it happen. I mean, it'll be this could be a really momentous weekend for everybody. So we'll be watching um very closely, everybody, and uh best of luck to everyone in, in Brazil. Yeah, I I wanna celebrate so badly. <laughs> a, a little victory. <laughs> I think I'm excited. I think I, I think we might have a lot to celebrate, but we will wait and see. Um well y'all, we have um much more to get to. I did want to do a quick pitch though. Because we've been really kicking into overdrive. We've got a lot of really amazing things coming up. In just a second, Darna Noor is going to be on the show uh, talking about Manchin, his fight with Bernie Sanders, what's nef- next for the uh, climate movement. Then um, Kale Brooks, uh, one of the producers at Jacobin Magazine, um, sorry, the Jacobin Show put on by Jacobin Magazine, uh, we're, we, we uh, drug him down to the muck a little bit. We made him watch um, some of this MAGA communism nonsense um and you'll be able to get access to that at patreon.com slash left reckoning i put together a little teaser of just what we'll be talking about jimmy door um seems to be struggling a lot um he struggles with a lot of things but particularly with the idea of marxism um, and communism and he's not really getting too much help um from his friends here so we brought kale in to help um set the record straight a little bit and let me just play this teaser right quick for everyone um okay so there it is there's there's uh, we still have so that's our definition of maga communism i still don't know what communism is they say it's marxism but i don't think so i think marx was just didn't i mean again i'm not i've read very little it's so funny because jimmy has basically adopted a set of politics entirely because he feels resentful of uh so you know, people like his co-host in that episode asking him like have you read lenin like fuck off yeah no you're so right um <laughs> so we'll be doing that in the post game we're having some fun um we got a lot of cool stuff coming up in october next week we're going to be talking about the politics of ngos that's been something that's been requested a lot um i'm really looking forward to sharing that with y'all um we're going to have Harvey J.K. will be joining us again um, in October to talk about his new book, Making His Triumphant Return mm. uh, to Left Reckoning. Uh, we got Brett. It's the, uh, well, his book, it's the um, it's the reissue of the British Marxist historians. Correct. Uh, which uh, I'm interested in because as somebody, uh, I'm a fan. I, I, I can name two off the top of my head and maybe I've read some of the other, but I know Christopher Hill is one uh, who does a lot of uh, mm-hmm. on Milton and the English Revolution. And also Eric Hobsbawm, who uh, uh, is a very if you if really if you have like a sort of like a newbie but want some uh, audiobook recommendations for like leftist viewers of history, the Hobsbawm uh, Age of series is what you should recommend. So uh, I'd be looking forward to talk to Harvey about those guys, and and much much more coming up. And don't forget, also in October, come and mm-hmm. celebrate my thirtieth birthday with me, Matt Leck, Ben Burgess, Anna Kasperian. Um, Lord in heaven, Ben Burgess. I already said that then. I Jason Miles, Danny Bester, Derek Varn. Actually, I'm trying to remember. Derek Varn, Cuba. It's going to be a lot of fun. I think we might even have oh, Cuba's going to be there. Mm-hmm. I don't even know. Damn, it's going to be a stack have any room for audience. <laughs> I know it's going to be a packed house. Um, so get your tickets now at the Terragram Ballroom in Los Angeles, October 23rd. Uh, I'd be really great to sell that one out. So um, keep. I keep saying keep your eye out. I don't know why I have that tick. 
they're out. You can go find them on the website, Teargram Ballroom, um, and and come yeah. see Matt and I and all of our friends. And let me, you know, let me have a nice uh, 30th birthday celebration. I'm a little nervous to be ending my 20s. Um, so it'd be nice to have a good crew. Oh, yeah, you should be. With. You definitely should be. It's not good. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Um, <laughs> But anyways, y'all, um, we'll be back in just a second uh, with Darna Noor, um, and uh, see you on a moment. See you, folks. Welcome back, Left Reckoners. Uh, we're very honored and excited today to be joined uh, by Don, Darna Noor, um, who is a writer with the Boston Globe. Thank you so much, Darna, for spending some time with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, obviously, a huge, huge fan of the show, longtime listener. <laughs> Thank you. It's been, it's, if people um, missed Darna's first appearance, um, you should definitely go and, and check it out. We talked about all of the messed up things that are happening down in Louisiana. Um, it's been too long, so we're really happy to have Darna on. Um, but we wanted to bring you on to talk about something a little technical, because I think there's still a lot of fuzziness about it. And I'll do a quick plug. Um, I did just put out a piece today um, in Green New Deal uh, media called Joe Biden's Climate Bill is a Far Cry from the Green New Deal. Y'all can check that out. Um, but I want to bring Darna on because she follows these things much more closely than I do um, to sort of give us a sense about what the IRA is. Um, so, I mean, the IRA is it's a huge ass bill. Um, it takes a lot of time to sort of come through. If you were to give people, um, you know, just a brief summary of what they should think about when they hear the Inflation Reduction Act in relation to dealing with climate change, I mean, how would you sort of frame it? Um, you know, I feel like I say this about so many different uh, sort of like new provisions in the U.S. about climate stuff. But I think the two biggest things about this are that um, it is the biggest investment that the U.S. has ever made in climate policy by pretty far. It's a landmark investment. It's historic. Uh, and also it is nowhere near what the science says is enough. Like it is absolutely true that it is unprecedented. And it is also absolutely true that it gets nowhere near the levels of uh, of change that we need. So, you know, pretty, pretty huge numbers, like almost $370 billion for climate and clean energy sort of policies, um, but also some pretty huge asterisks in there that like many people in the climate movement have called out. Yeah, I mean, it's, I think um, Kate Aronoff had a really good piece in the New Statesman trying to sort of break down the the theory of change in, in the IRA. And yeah, you know, yeah. I think a couple of things that are really notable is its reliance on, um, on you know, tax credits as basically trying to spur the market to do something versus a, a system of like direct investment. Yes. You know, um, before we get to like the individual stuff, I mean, could you sort of set people up so they understand, you know, what these kind of credits are, particularly for for solar, but also for other forms of of energy too? Yeah, totally. So there's um, there's like tax incentives and rebates and things like this in the bill for individuals and then also for companies. Uh, so if you're a company and you you know put solar panels on your firm's buildings um, or you know you power parts of your sort of supply chain with solar or things like this, you can get. Um, some money back. And then also if you're a homeowner or a renter, I guess, sort of 
um, although pretty clearly geared towards homeowners in many cases. Um, I don't you, think I don't think my landlord would let me put solar on my building, yeah, just yeah, maybe yeah, being yeah. in Texas. But anyway, his yeah, landlords are uh, you know obviously so easy to deal with always. <laughs> um, but yeah, so there's so there's like incentives for people individually to do things like. Um, you know, buy new induction stoves or get solar panels on their homes and things like this. So there's like company level um, incentives and there's also individual level incentives. Um, and that's, I mean, and that is sort of the theory of change of the bill, as as you as you said, and that as as Kate said, that's sort of the the foundation um, of the the like renewable energy policies. Politically, it feels like where we're at. It reminds me of like a a parent giving a a present to a baby and trying to sell that baby on being very excited about that present. And it's like, yeah, this is a cool rattle, but it's like fundamentally we need something more than this. And like the theory of change, like you mentioned, I remember when uh, Obamacare passed, there was this whole like sort of line for the progressives, which was, this is just a stepping stone on the way to what we all want, which is universal health care. And that's a fun thing to like tell those voters like me, that and to keep us energized but the leadership is not necessarily on board with that at all as we found out and i feel like that's that's the kind of the t- we're, we're speaking something to people who actually like you say acknowledge the reality of where scientists say we need to get to with climate and also the like donor class which is like that when they hear biden say this is the biggest thing we've ever done it's like okay we've done our bit then we can like you know go back to drinking wine yeah, absolutely. Actually, so you mentioned um, the piece that Kate Aronoff wrote for the New Statesman. She wrote another piece, I think, in the New Republic that um, sort of zeroed in on this dynamic, particularly where like it's pretty difficult to criticize something that you a might be benefiting from, um, but b if, even if you're like a nonprofit or like an advocacy group or something, if you've been campaigning on this message of like we are helping to get the biggest piece of climate legislation in the United States ever passed. And then it turns out to be pretty disappointing. You're probably not going to say that, you know, you're probably going to stick to this message that it's historic and it's huge and everything, which like, you know, those things are true. But uh, I think there's also plenty to be critical of in the bill. So, yeah, I mean, um, I I think it's always worth noting that, like, when we're talking about the size of investment, it's it's not even as big as Biden's original plans and obviously a far cry away from, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and AOC's Green New Deal. Um, but I think um, I, I think it'd be helpful maybe to start to, to zero in, I think, on some of the more controversial parts of it, because like obviously we need, you know, tremendous investment if like like perfect world, we're going to need tremendous investment in our our energy infrastructure. And frankly, we need that like climate change or not. Um, it's it's terrible Absolutely. how how failing our energy infrastructure is in this country. So like, you know, you could be a little cynical here and, and say like, well, this is, you know, wonderful because it's it's sort of fixing up, patching up some of those problems. Um, but when you look at the the, the kind of text of, of the IRA, um, it really does give a pretty significant advantage to the oil and gas industry, uh, most notably when they're trying to open up federal lands um, to any kind of solar wind projects. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you know, oil companies are sort of getting first bid um, on those lands before the the solar and wind are able to get in in the first place. Yeah, and in fact, the the bill actually like requires um, that more public lands be offered for oil and gas leasing before those are used for for before like any um, renewable energy projects, so wind and solar can be built on public lands. So it's not even like 
you get first dibs. It's that mm. the specific, like the parcels of land have to be, you know, you have to offer them up to the oil and gas industry specifically, and you have to get these um, sort of projects, uh, you know, underway, it sounds like before, um, before renewables can happen. And it's like not exactly clear what exactly that will look mm. like. Um, it's obviously been the subject of like tons and tons of criticism, rightly from people who note that we cannot actually afford to build any more fossil fuel infrastructure if we're going to meet um, climate goals like that even, you know, top climate scientists are saying that we have to adhere to to have a survivable future. Um, but, you know, definitely pretty concerning, uh, especially because this was marked as like the biggest, again, biggest climate investment that we've seen in U.S. history. And I mean, not like not to try to put myself in mansion and choose too much, but like as policy, I think there's a problem with it because like, I think a lot of folks like, don't get me wrong. Oil and gas wants to expand the places that they're able to drill. But I think people really should look at what happened during um, one, like COVID and two, this most recent spike in, in gas prices. You know, the, the fossil fuel industry has been really hesitant um, to even invest in their own infrastructure, right? Even in places that they already own own oil. So like if the solution if the idea is like, we're going to open up more land for drilling so that the price of gasoline goes down. You know, you actually need to, it's not really that there's like a, a lack of places that the fossil fuel industry can expand production right now in the United States. It's actually the fossil fuel industry itself saying it doesn't seem as profitable as we would like it to be, or it's more profitable profitable for us to keep, you know, kind of artificial scarcity um, around um, than, than anything like that. Again, not saying that they're not going to try to expand and that it's not a threat or anything like that. But if you're just trying to sit here and say, you know, I'm playing this like a video game, trying to boost energy production for my country, the fossil fuel companies themselves are like much more of a problem than the lack of available oil futures for them. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, it's not as though there's there's a couple different places that are sort of targeted in the um, IRA for new drilling. Um, one of them that's really huge is the Gulf of Mexico. Um, it's not actually clear that this is a good idea economically for the oil and gas industry. You know, they're expanding in tons of other places too. Mm -hmm. But there are some other things in the bill that are pretty good for them. You know, there's I uh, whether or not you think that we need um, this kind of technology to like actually achieve um, climate goals. Uh, the fossil fuel industry has been pretty stoked, for instance, about uh, carbon capture and storage incentives and things like this. Mm -hmm. um, those are hugely expanded in the bill. So there's some other sort of uh, big gifts to uh, to the fossil fuel industry in, in the IRA also. But I mean, um, before we start getting the permitting stuff, because that's an interesting <laughs> fight that we're seeing now. Um, I, you know, I do want to be, you know, positive and note that like, you know, there are some positive things um, where public power companies can now um, access the government money, which has been a ridiculous, um, I don't know, hangover from a previous era where they've been sort of pushed out. So that's a very positive thing. Yeah, it's uh, really, really huge. And I think pretty um, uh, little understood provision in this bill that essentially means that public power companies like public utilities and things like this can actually take advantage of the kinds of incentives that make it uh, like financially feasible for them to bring renewable power online. Um, so, you know, hopefully we'll start seeing changes then in like the Tennessee Valley Authority and things like this um, that I know that, you know, we've talked about here before. Yeah. And, and like, just to like highlight that for folks, I mean, it created this very peculiar tension, particularly with the TVA, uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority, for people who don't know what that is, um, where there was, um, you know, where basically solar wind projects were like to the, 
were were like a, sort of a net negative for these public power companies because yeah. they couldn't participate in the same way that private companies could, uh, which again is like a very bad way to run environmental policy because if you have a system like that that provides a lot of energy to people. Um, no reason for not to be able to take part in, uh, you know, government initiatives to increase renewable energy. Totally. And, uh, you know, it's like a federal agency, technically. Uh, <laughs> you're, creating a, you're creating an incentive system that means that the thing that you purportedly are in control of um, can't take advantage of the incentives that you are putting forth. Um, so, yeah, let's hope that that, that sticks around. Um, that's a, a pretty huge deal. Well, well before we get to the... Um, uh, the permitting fight. Um, you mentioned it a little bit before, but for like individuals, um, you, you were mentioning that there's the retrofitting of like home appliances, um, but also EV credits. And, you know, someone with my politics, I get a little nervous sometimes with the the tax system and, and what that actually means for more working people versus people in a higher income bracket. I mean, could you talk about the accessibility of, of these kind of credits to maybe somebody who's not in the 100,000 a year set, somebody more in the 50, 60 set? Yeah, I mean, so there's a bunch of different on the like sort of home improvement front, like, you know, uh, retrofitting your home, whether that means getting new appliances or, um, you know, having like more energy efficient windows, whatever it is. There's a bunch of different programs in the IRA. I think there's there's three different ones um, and there's ones that are sort of specifically targeted towards low income folks um, that are rebates, meaning you don't have to owe a certain amount in taxes to get um, money back. Sorry, this is so deeply into the weeds. No, this is important. Um, <laughs> and then there's other ones that are sort of targeted by people who have a higher like tax burden. So people who make more money. Um, uh, I mean, I think the the question what there are questions about whether or not these kinds of incentive programs are even the best way to approach energy policy. Um, even if you put those aside, I think that a lot of the question will be in the implementation process of these. Like, it's not very useful to have a rebate program if nobody hears about your rebate program. Um, mm -hmm. If, you know, if when you go to buy a stove, it's not just like the first thing that people hear that uh, you can get a stove that doesn't like create levels of pollution in your house that would be illegal outdoors. Um, and now it might be cheaper to do that than it was before. Um, so, you know, the implementation will be really important. Also, there are some pretty huge questions about uh, how markets will respond to these incentives, which is, again, like part of the question about these incentive structures in the first place. Markets are sticky and, uh, you know, private companies, obviously, their primary incentive is to make profits. Um, so there are lots of questions about how they'll like adapt to these. Um, you mentioned the EV credits. One huge sort of question there is that uh, the Inflation Reduction Act creates new sort of qualifications. Um, so in order for an EV to apply for these tax credits or to qualify for these tax credits, um, they'll now have to have a certain percent of the materials come from the U.S. Um, they'll have to be manufactured in the U.S. Uh, some of these like new sort of qualifications have already been phased in. Um, so, you know, there's this sort of foreign policy question of what that means for further for like future U.S. relations with China. But even if you think that this is a good thing for like boosting U.S. markets and U.S. you know manufacturing jobs and things like this, uh, there are some pretty big questions about how fast exactly manufacturers are going to be able to keep up with these new mm -hmm. things. So, you know, all of it is just basically, again, markets are super complicated and these are all market based solutions. And so that means that there will be lots and lots of big sort of question marks moving forward. 
Is is the um, made in America aspect of of the IRA? Is that going to be influencing kind of um, both like supply side and like residential solar and wind projects as well, or is that just limited to to EVs? As far as I know, actually, that's a good question. But as far as I know, it's just the EV stuff. Um, but that, I mean, that could influence a number of different sectors. Like it could mean that um, in the future, mine, there's more mining in the U.S. for like the kind of critical minerals and things that we need for EV batteries. Um, it could mean that there are more, there's more of a need for manufacturing facilities and stuff like that in the U.S. Um, the supply chain for this stuff is like basically non-existent in the United States right now. Mm. So, uh, like the future is just very, very unclear on this stuff. <laughs> well, I was hoping to get um, to something else, which, you know, is definitely on the top of most people's minds. It's a very sexy topic. Um, permitting reform in the U.S. Um, yeah, God, so we're not in the weeds enough already. <laughs> <laughs> but this this is important. Like there, there's a lot on it um, going on right now because they've ba- so um, interrupt me if I'm if I'm presenting this wrong. But effectively, in the IRA, there's a call in it that to make these things happen, to make the system work, we need to have permitting reform um, in the United States. And what they mean by that is, you know, the U.S., we have like a f- f- strong, we have a very complicated, uh, long system for most kind of projects that are doing any kind of, you know, large scale pipeline, or even if you're trying to build transmission systems for solar and wind, which by the way, y'all, like that's one of the issues with solar and wind is that, you know, we can talk about how great it is that there's a lot of land in West Texas, but when you think about where the metropolitan areas are, it's far away. So you have to have a system that's able to transfer that electricity to the places where it's going to be used. Um, So there has to be a way, if you want to build out these systems on a faster timeline, um, to make it a, a bit quicker. But um, the way that the mansion has basically been proposing it um, would be a kind of, you know, all of the above policy where it's like you're not picking one industry over the other. You're basically trying to fast track oil pipelines as much as you're trying to fast track, um, you know, electric transmission lines. Yeah, totally. And this comes actually from like a sort of handshake agreement that Chuck Schumer and Manchin made um, the idea was sort of, you know, uh, Manchin was obviously like a on the fence about the Inflation Reduction Act. And so Schumer was sort of like, you know, well, if you vote in favor of this thing that we want, then we'll give you the thing that you want, which is permitting reform. He says permitting reform. Um, pretty clearly a huge part of that is he wants the Mountain Valley Pipeline, um, which is a gas pipeline that's going to be sited through his home state of West Virginia. Um, so, you know, in addition to sort of ensuring that that pipeline would get built, which is a pretty huge deal, you know, hugely contested pipeline for years and years, um, that would put tons of folks at risk who are like already breathing polluted air and, you know, drinking polluted water and things like this. Um, yeah, it treats all energy as sort of, you know, we need more solar, we need more wind. We also need more gas, um, which, you know, we don't, um, but uh, but yeah. So so that's that's the the sort of premise of the of the permitting bill. And I don't I don't mean to put you on the spot because I know these are are, are pretty complicated. But um, I mean, effectively, what we're talking about here um, would it be that the federal government would be sort of like overriding other systems of you know community say, or would it be? Um, I mean, how, how exactly are we talking? I mean, because I, I get the idea of like fast tracking it, but like what's the, the function? Like how are we actually fast tracking these these systems? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. There's a bunch of different ways that it works. So, you know, some of these um, provisions basically say that there's only a certain um, short window where people can file like civil complaints or lawsuits against new infrastructure. 
which itself is pretty scary. You know, a huge way that people can even have a say in the infrastructure that gets built in their communities is by filing lawsuits. Um, and so limiting that could be pretty, pretty spooky. Um, yeah, then there's some other sort of provisions where it says that the Biden administration needs to identify some sort of critical projects um, and fast track those, meaning that it needs to give them permits very quickly. Um, it means that environmental reviews have to take place over a much shorter period of time. Environmental reviews are, you know, often really complicated and can mm. take a really long time for a reason, not to say that they're never uh, kind of drawn out. Um, but uh, I think it's pretty important to like see how infrastructure will affect the people who it's built near. Um, so, you know, opens the door for fast tracking in a bunch of different ways. Especially in this country. <laughs> so, sorry, Matt, did you, were you about to say No, something? no, I was just no. laughing. Um, so, you know, basically for everyone who hasn't been following, like the politics of this now is that we need to have um, a new spending bill passed and they're basically trying to attach it um, to, to the spending bill. And it's been, uh, quite controversial. Um, there's been a bit of a fight about it. Um, before we, before we start to, um, speculate as to whether or not it's going to happen or not, uh, let's hear from Manchin himself to see how he's framing this issue. Now, this is from just a couple of days ago, uh, Manchin giving a press conference. I guess, I guess the old, the old saying, saying that, that uh, politics, politics makes strange bedfellows. I got to be honest with you. I've been around for a long time in state politics and federal politics. I've never seen stranger bedfellows than Bernie Sanders and the uh, uh, the uh, extreme liberal left siding up with the Republican leadership in the caucus. I've never seen this happen. Uh, so it's uh, it's come to me. What I'm hearing is it's like a revenge politics. Uh, and basically revenge towards one person, me. And I'm thinking, this is not about me. This is about something uh, uh, that Bernie has never, Bernie has never supported anything about permitting reforms. And you're facing a country today, we've passed this out to you, I think, permitting timelines. If you look at what we do in the United States, five to 10 years, that's a minimum. If you look at basically states that have uh, countries that have vigorous environmental uh, over oversights, one to three years, one to three years. And then if you look at what's happening now because of the energy crisis we have in the Ukraine war, you have EU is considering emergency bypassing of all environmental reviews. And we don't think we're in a crisis and we're not going to do anything about it. And we can. And then you look here at the energy prices. Look what the people in America are facing right now. 200% increase in natural gas. Natural gas increases to regular gasoline's up 67%. Residential electricity, 15%. And then look at what's happening as far as overseas. 1,100% increase. Do you, you all get one of these? If you have. The elder statesman. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, I mean, like, again, like, it's interesting, you know, just really talking politics, you know, Manchin really, I think, has set himself as like the, I don't know, it's funny, because one day he's reluctant about the IRA and all these things. And the other day, and then the next day, he's trying to present as like, look what I've done. You know, look what I'm pushing. Why aren't people supporting this bill? Bernie Sanders is doing revenge policy. Um, just to set us all up on the same page. Um, we have this response um, from Bernie Sanders on uh, the bird app. Uh, I can't do a good Bernie, but uh, I'll read it. Um, <laughs> I wish I 
No, defeating the big oil side deal is not about revenge. It's about whether or not we will stand with 650 environmental and civil rights organizations who understand that the future of the planet is with renewable energy and energy efficiency, not approving the Mountain Valley Pipeline. The Mountain Valley Pipeline would generate emissions equivalent to 37 coal plants or putting 27 million more cars on the road. It's hard for me to understand why anyone concerned about climate change would consider voting to approve such a dirty and dangerous frack gas pipeline. The big oil side requires the president to prioritize 25 energy projects for expedited environmental reviews of those 19 uh, could be dirty fossil fuels or mining projects and zero are required uh, to be renewable energy projects uh, that would reduce emissions. This is unacceptable. So this is the the fight that we're, we're seeing in Congress. And um, I mean, unless you have anything that you might want to say about the way Bernie or, or Manchin are framing that, um, I mean, what are the politics looking like this? I mean, is Bernie just doing a, a classic Bernie standing and making a point before it gets overwhelmingly passed? Or does it look like there might be a fracture on this? Oh, I mean, it seems that there could definitely be a fracture on this, especially because I mean, I don't know if it's revenge, but it certainly seems that there are, you know, there was a sort of competing permitting bill that um, some sort of Republicans rallied around um, a bunch of them. uh, And, you know, there's been quite a bit of sort of criticism of mention from the Republican side for supporting the Inflation Reduction Act in the first place. Um, It's not clear at all whether or not there's going to be enough votes to get this thing through, Um, you know. If there is, it's pretty clear that he's going to have to get some Republicans on his side. He said so himself. Um, so not not clear what this is going to look like, um, which, as you sort of said before, that could mean that we also have a little government shutdown. Um, <laughs> not infrequent thing. <laughs> yeah, politics. exactly. I know it sounds so dramatic. And then you're like, oh, yeah, I like all the other ones. <laughs> it's also remember. like. His whole shit is supposed to be his ability to work with Republicans. So, like, yeah. you should yeah. be able to, like, get some to sign on with you. And that's if one guy, Bernie Sanders, like, I wish Bernie was able to lock stuff down like this, uh, be in a little bit better position. But I mean, I think it says more about Republicans, actually. Totally. Yeah, 100%. Well, um, in, in the last couple of minutes, I wanted to broaden out a little bit. I mean, um, you know, I'll say this. I've said this a bunch of times, like for a long time when it came to environmental politics, just being a good lefty, I was like, well, I'll just support the people who have good environmental politics. I didn't really think about it too much. Just put my cars on the table. Um, but then I've started to realize over time that, oh, you know, there's actually going to be a lot of policy on this and it's going to start to matter as to what happens. Um, and it's it's worthwhile paying attention to, um, you know, we have to go beyond just being like, oh, we believe in the science, but starting to recognize that, you know. They're very different worlds that are possible uh, coming out of uh, out of this transition. Um, and one of the things about the IRA that I've been sort of worried about, where it's like I welcome you know some of the provisions. When I hear everyone saying this is the biggest climate legislation that's ever been passed, um, you know, you think about the the scale, the scope, the fights that went into it. I mean, how do you think that this is going to sort of affect? Um, the kind of climate movement in, in, in this country. Um, you know, do, do, you have, do you think there's some people who might start feeling, you know, oh man, well, we got this done. Um, I'm still going to care about this a bit, but, you know, it's time to move on to maybe something else or people might be disappointed by it and start to feel like politics isn't really the answer for doing things like this. I mean, you know, you've been covering and involved in a lot of these things for a long time. So I'm just curious what your, your sense and take of the effect broadly I mean, I think we're going to definitely see both of those things. I think we're seeing lots and lots of celebration um, of this bill. 
we're also seeing, uh, again, like quite a bit of uh, uh, disappointment with this bill that I think is leaving some people disillusioned. Um, and I'll be really interested, frankly, to see like where the sort of broader climate movement, um, you know, how they respond to this and then also how it sort of fractures in response to this. Um, you know, the permitting deal, I think, is a really great example where um, like on the one hand, you're totally right that we need more sort of permanent permitting uh, reform. We need like it's pretty clear uh, more transmission lines and things like this. Um and I think that there's been quite a bit of focus on like that in the abstract instead of actually mm -hmm. looking at the policy itself. And I think that if this has taught us anything, it's that, you know, looking at like the, the demands that we have in the abstract uh, doesn't really make very much sense when what you're talking about is like real politics that has real consequences for real, real people. Um, and when the people who are sort of, you know, in charge of deciding what our future looks like um, are not generally motivated by, um, you know, or at least not solely motivated by the like fight for a survivable future, but instead motivated by also like, I think fair to maybe assume uh, like the people who are maybe funding their campaigns and things like this. Um, so I don't know. I mean, on the one hand, like, I think it's it's totally reasonable that that people are celebrating this as a victory, anything that would not have been sort of possible if it were not for things like the huge movement for a Green New Deal that we've seen over the past few years. On the other hand, I think it's really important to be sort of realistic and like highlight the massive differences between uh, what those demands looked like, you know, five to two, even like just a year ago, um, and what actually is in the text of the bill. Um, the other thing that I'll say is like, I think any time that there's a big policy like this, there's a real danger of looking at just the text of the policy and not seeing how it's actually implemented. So like the big flashy moment, right, is the moment that Biden signs a bill, the moment that you get the votes or whatever. Um, but there are, you know, in some ways, the IRA raises as many questions as it answers, you know, like, how is it actually going to play out when the way that people have to um, when the way that people get their like incentives for their electric vehicles changes, how is it going to play out when, uh, you know, there's like new kind of tax incentives for uh, firms to use solar energy and things like this? Um, who's going to be left out of that? Who's going to stand to benefit the most from that? What companies are going to benefit the most from that? What individuals? Um, so I think this is like only the very, very beginning of the story. And uh, I think as we see that implementation process, I think there's going to be a lot of probably some more, unfortunately, fracturing happening along the way. Yeah, it's it's it, it's a rough moment because I think it's also worth reminding folks that, you know, while we need we definitely need more renewables, we have to think about the way that they're structured. I mean, you know, here right now, there's a lot of fights going on because a lot of the solar and wind jobs aren't good jobs and they're they're really taking advantage of people. And and I think that this is one of the big differences between maybe like the Bernie Sanders and the more progressive movement and maybe more, I don't know more standard democratic party voters as they just see green good um instead of recognizing like you know these things have real effects on a lot of people's lives um and, and it's important that we reckon with that yeah totally i mean to that point like we've seen already folks like general motors um sort of you know using the process of transitioning to evs as sort of a way to say okay well now the remaining jobs left in uh in producing these sort of old school cars uh, are going to go to contract workers. You know, we're not going to give people the same benefits to work on those and things like this. And I think that 
watching what, for instance, like the new AV incentive structure, uh, what effects it has on that sort of like labor um, market and those labor struggles is going to be really important. You know, uh, the the text of the bill is only like the very, very first part of the puzzle. Um, it doesn't really tell us very much about what the future will look like. No, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's it's going to be interesting. Um to, to watch. Well, before, before we let you go and I apologize because I didn't prep you on this, but I hope that, um, you might be able to, uh, speak to this a little bit. Um, you wrote a really great piece, um, a little while ago about, uh, King Charles. And if you wanted to, you know, push people to go and, uh, you know, click that, that link and read the piece. I mean, um, could you just sort of, uh, set that up, give people a little pitch to go, uh, read that? Oh, uh, <laughs> sure. Thank you. Um, you know, King Charles has been sort of, uh, lauded for all of his like climate activism and things like this, which is largely focused in two realms. One is like his personal consumption habits. And the other one is, uh, trying to push corporations to make like greener investments. Um, whatever that means, you know, not a ton of accountability in that sphere. Cause it's all like private sector stuff. Um, so, you know, for all of that, he's been lauded as like the new climate king. A lot of people have been really, you know, excited about what that could mean for the sort of climate fight. Um, there's been some fear that he might sort of start uh, being a little bit more measured about his calls for climate action in the future. Um, but in the piece, I took sort of a different look at this, which is, um, you know, that the history of climate change is pretty deeply interwoven. And in some ways, it's the same history as uh, the history of British imperialism and and uh, colonialism. Uh, and I think, you know, the idea that a climate king could exist is like pretty strange. <laughs> if you um, you know, but if uh, if he's serious about sort of taking on like the massive uh, contributions of his nation to climate change, then he has to also be serious about taking on the contributions of uh his nation to colonialism. I mean, not contributions to dry as a driving force of colonialism. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm not holding my breath, but I guess we'll see. Yeah. I, I like that a guy that doesn't clean his own desk, like has a, a special person do that. Like his personal consumption habits are going to be impressive. Like, yeah, he has, well, I, I don't even know what that means for that guy. He has like a different guy driving rum in a slightly different fancy car that <laughs> uses electric, you know, batteries like oh my, okay, no cool. literally not even not even electric batteries um matt his he has a car that runs on the byproducts of wine and cheese like a biofuel that is made from byproducts of wine and cheese uh yes this this that's is amazing. The that's scalable i think <laughs> yeah, certainly. i mean who doesn't have a lot of old wine and cheese sitting around in the uh in the cellar um <laughs> Well, well, Darna, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time. I couldn't imagine anyone better uh, to help break down all these topics with us. Uh, people you. should definitely be reading Darna's work in the Boston Globe and also following her on Twitter. She is a wonderful follow. Um, I really appreciate it. And we'll definitely have to have you on sooner um, than later. Thank you so much. Um, yeah, it was really fun to chat. Thanks, Darna. Yes, folks. And we should uh, also note yeah, I realized that. There's too. an outcome uh, that, that happened. Uh, Manchin did not get his wish. It uh, went down to defeat. There, it looks like they're going to try to uh, pass. Manchin is going to try to regroup for the uh, next military bill, defense bill. So 
Yeah. So it's, it's, it's not done. And I think the analysis still stands as to what the motivations there. Um, but yeah, I mean, this postponed for a bit. I mean, again, like I'm not knee jerk against, uh, permitting reform but this certainly was not anywhere close to what we'd want to be seeing um and i also prefer permitting reform to be around uh public institutions building out long-term transmission systems versus private corporations but right exactly absolutely i can't i can't uh repeat myself enough on this though if you're not already following uh darna i mean she in reading her work she's she's one of the best in the game um and i respect her work immensely so be sure to do that Absolutely. Talking about game, have, Matt, you got one. Yeah, yeah. So you know, the kind of game. Uh, well, I'm I'm a North Dakota boy. I have not ever experienced a hurricane uh, before. Well, well, that's not actually true. Uh, hurricane Sandy uh, here in New York uh, years ago. I I did actually experience that. I never believed it. I mean, I know there was a hor- horrific hurricane for people, but you know, being in South Carolina for a few years, like. <laughs> <laughs> I'd been through a couple, you know what I mean? But no, well, I mean, I'm sorry. Sandy was a huge deal. What am I talking about? I don't know. It's just like, <laughs> it's, if it's a regular experience in your life for a bit and and it's an irregular experience in your life, it's hard to compare, I guess. But Yeah, I mean, I was lucky in Sandy. We didn't even lose power. Um, I, I mean, it's able to... And and the uh, worst thing is like, sorry, I'm like just correcting myself because it's like, it's like the same kind of thing too. Like when like it's cold here for a long period of time, it's like you get people like, oh, I experienced that a lot. It's like, well, you know, if the infrastructure is not sort of prepped for something like that hitting, it's like absolutely more disastrous than places that are, you know, prepared for it in some sense. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the thing where like a sort of um, general wisdom or, um, uh, a common sense about something can turn pretty actually dark if you let it go a little bit too far. And actually this is, I want to bring Tucker Carlson in here uh, to give a message to our uh, Florida uh, listeners. Uh, Here's Tucker. So you hate to hype hurricanes because it's just a staple of TV and everyone's kind of onto the scam, but there's a legitimately large hurricane barreling toward the Gulf coast of Florida tonight. So, so what I like about that is like, I just think if you need to make even as like a Marxist who hates the corporate media, like I don't know if that's the point to get you a little yeah. jab in about how uh, uncredible like the media is. I think it actually is a decent uh, uh, service of the media to help forewarn people about hurricanes. And uh, that brings us to uh, tonight's topic, which is a boss of a, a car. I, what is it? Um, I have it here. This is Postcard Mania, a company in Clearwater, Florida. Uh, this was caught by uh, Jonah Furman, a great labor reporter. Um, employees at marketing firm Postcard Mania in Clearwater, Florida, are not only being asked to work through the hurricane, but are being told to bring their kids and pets to stay at work overnight so as to continue to service our national clients. Um PCM was built to withstand category five winds. I would like to continue. uh, We would like to continue to service our national clients. If we can bring your kids to work on Tuesday and Wednesday this week, we will have movies and fun for them. There's some emojis from joy. uh, I've lived here for over 30 years. There's is always more hype in the media than any storm that has ever hit here. Postcard mania is the best place to be. It's super strong. Bring your pets if you feel the need, which is again, that's just like, 
you're saying that as if it's um an offer yeah of yeah you're right you're right but like what i what i have to hear is that if somebody actually which is not the case here what's implied here is you need to get your ass to work and obviously like there's a danger that they risk then if their kid like parents are at work and their kids getting drowned by a fucking hurricane so they know they have to open the doors up to even the fucking pets um uh and the and and the thing is is like okay i looked at the building it's a big warehouse building it's got windows on it's got a roof on it i i hope it can withstand those winds it's going to be a category four hurricane that we're going to hit what about flooding Right, exactly. Like, what about flooding? What about like? No, I because, mean, no, because beyond no, the, all your concerns are like very correct and like front, right? Um, but the second bit is if you stay after an evacuation order has been made and mm-hmm. everybody leaves, then you can be stuck in an area for like three to four days before there is food, water, supplies, healthcare. If you need, it. I mean, you are straight up stranded right. in a place with no infrastructure. Right. So again, like I totally agree that like, like, you know, just like be cynical for a second, like say like maybe they have the most, which I think you're right, that it's probably a a boast on their part and not the truth. Let's say, though, that they have like the most state of the art weatherproof like facility you could ever imagine. You're asking people to basically live in a disaster zone for days on. And I guess what else are you going to do there? But ship up some fucking postcards afterwards. I mean, (laughs) that's cynical, sinister stuff, man. Right. Yeah, exactly. And we have a little bit more from the uh, uh, CEO. I'll just read. It's just fucking wild to me. Hi, guys. I just I can't get over the fucking faux bonhomie. The faux like, hey, we're friends. We're going to get through this experience together. Like you're being invited over to like binge watch something um, and wait the storm out. Can you hear me? We're driving. Here's the deal. I guess the hurricane is coming. I've lived in this area for 33 years and now the media always makes it a lot worse than ever been. Obviously, we have to plan for best and hope for a nothing burger. The problem is all it takes is one. And I don't care if your house has been there since like 1923. All it takes is floods. Okay, fine. You survive the winds. What if fucking floods come because a hurricane went over the entire state of Florida? Like, I mean, that's insane. I mean, that's cruelty. I mean, that, (laughs) you know, like any reasonable society would, uh, would be putting somebody like that in in prison for endangering the lives of, of all those people. Cause like, as you're saying, like, especially in areas like that, where you do have hurricanes, you know, I think most people are having the reactions that we're having who are working there, but there is that kind of, you know, feeling of like, okay, well the hurricane will come in the next week. What am I going to do? Like, am I going to be unemployed? And like that threat, um, can be extremely motivating to, do something really risky like that to like, you know, to play for the vanity vanity. If only it was vanity, the greed, like the, the pure dollars yeah. sense greed of some fucking bloated asshole. Lord. I mean, I, I, I was going to be done with this, but I can't take my eyes off it. Um, just read a little bit more here. Um, obviously we can, we can have a plan for disaster and hope for a nothing burger, which every single time we plan for disaster, it's always a nothing burger. So if it's super windy and you feel uncomfortable driving across the causeway, then we'll figure out how to get you to work from home. But I'm not afraid of this thing personally, personally, as the person who's telling you as the person who, you know, pays your wage, I'm telling you that, uh, stick around in this evacuation zone, um, because I don't think this is going to be nothing. If you die personally, that I'll probably be a little bit upset, but I'm also got an eye on like 
at least everybody else was here working. Oh my um, God. Isn't that crazy? No, I'm um, just scanning through it and there's so many nuggets in here. Obviously, you feeling safe and comfortable is of the utmost importance, but I honestly want to continue to deliver and I want to have a good <laughs> end of quarter. Okay, great. So it seems like you're not really weighing these things equally here. And then she, she says, or they say, I don't know. Um, Joy, I believe she, yeah. Um, we keep looking every five minutes to see what's going on, but I think it's going to be a nothing burger like usual. You got to, you know, vary that up a little bit. Um, crossing my fingers because that's what I'd like. Anyway, raise your hand if you're scared of the hurricane. It's really not going to be that scary, but if you're scared, I understand. And wait for this next bit. I also understand why you're not raising your hand. Oh, they're they're caring for their employees? No. It's because I just said it's going to be nothing. The cruelty and the narcissism here is like, oh, well, these people are so stupid. They don't have their own opinions on hurricanes, right? So like, oh, oh, she says this could be fine, so we're okay now. Um, instead of people not wanting well, to raise their yeah. hand because they're afraid of retaliation from you because you're basically saying that that's not an excuse for not coming to work. Amazing. I mean, bring your pets, bring your kids, bring everybody to PCM, and Jason can start blowing up those air mattresses. Been there, done that. It's going to be fine. I mean, yeah, I'd love to have that ringing in my fucking ears as I float into a fucking swamp because, uh, like, and and that is a very real possibility. And again, like the only reason they're offering to have people come in there is because they know that they, at least in the back of their mind, they thought like, oh shit, what if their fucking house gets wiped out? Because unlike our great warehouse, it wasn't built to withstand category five uh, 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 wins. And you know what? Look, if your house gets blown away. It's not like you're going to be doing anything at home anyway. You might as well stick around and get another uh, eight hours in. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) No, you know, yeah, there'd be no games there. Lord in heaven. Well, I hope those people (laughs) revolt and uh, are able to evacuate safely um, from their from the hurricane and their narcissistic boss. Psychos. Well, y'all, we're going to go over to the uh, the post game. Usually it takes us a couple minutes, but we're already in prep to go. so immediately after this, probably like five minutes, just to get everything set up. We'll be over mm-hmm. in the post game with Kale Brooks of the Jackman show. Just one quick pitch. You know, on this show, we don't really do too much uh, Jimmy Dore talk or Jimmy Dore bashing. Um, but this time I feel like we really needed to because this one is so, I don't know, it's juicy. It's fun. And I will say right. Kale does make it, Kale does make it a little bit more nutritious um, than it could have been. Um, but you get access to this <laughs> over at patreon.com uh, slash left reckoning. Uh, we'll see all of y'all over there. Really appreciate all the love and support. I'm going to play this teaser and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Um, okay. So there it is. There's, there's, uh, we still have, so that's our definition of MAGA communism. I still don't know what communism is. They say it's Marxism, but I don't think so. I think Marx was just, didn't, I mean, again, I'm not, I've read very little 